Welcome to Exercising Health Podcast, a show dedicated to making health science simple. In this first episode of the podcast, I interviewed Dr. Peter Francis, a sports and exercise scientist out of Ireland who specializes in the research on sports rehabilitation and human gait biomechanics. He has also taken a keen interest in the topics of barefoot running and how physical activities of man in the 21st century has changed from the times of hunter-gatherers and how this difference in lifestyle is affecting our health and athletic performance. During this interview, we spoke about the benefits of barefoot running for injury prevention, what the deal is with the widespread issue of flat feet, aka fallen arches, what shoes one should wear to reduce their risk of developing injuries, why elite athletes like Eliad Kipchoge are such high performers, and Dr. Francis also provides the top seven things everyone should include in their training programs. For a summary of everything we spoke about, including links to all the studies and other info mentioned in the episode, visit the blog version of this podcast at exercisinghealth.net forward slash podcast. Alternatively, use the search bar on the exercisinghealth.net homepage and search for Peter Francis. So without further ado, let's get into it. Dr. Francis, hi, can you hear me? Hi, how are you? All right, and yourself? Good. Okay, so yeah, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to be with us on the show. A little bit of a background, I've long been a strong advocate for barefoot running. And it was actually how I came across your work um, in my research, uh, which I found to be very informative, by the way. Maybe we can start by you briefly describing how you came to focus some of your research on this topic, as well as your background as a researcher. I came to it uh, really through experience. Um, I was a keen runner for since I was 15, really. And um, I started to pick up a lot of injuries. And I was in the Middle East uh, teaching English after I finished my first degree when I was 23 and I got plantar fasciitis. I'd spend a lot of money getting a lot of treatment and, and so on but the way my work schedule was over there and the way society as a whole was over there it wasn't so easy to get access to treatment and so a friend of mine at home just sent me a magazine article about barefoot running and said have you seen this so I found the only um grass park that there is in Qatar and I went there and I ran for 15 minutes I did it twice and my plantar fasciitis was gone and so I came back from the Middle East to Ireland to do my PhD and I said to my professor hey this amazing thing happened to me in the Middle East uh, you know and he kind of threw his eyes to heaven and he was like all right um, but he said look you can you can work with one of my undergrad students to investigate whatever it is you want to look at so we took the arm off the treadmill and uh, I was the athletics coach at the time so I got the distance runners down and we looked at them running at slow speeds and fast speeds with and without their shoes we saw changes in biomechanics and that was the first study we ever published on barefoot running and a lot of it really has just gone from there fascinating story um, and it's amazing when you can kind of match your own personal experience and your testimonial with, uh, with science and you can see, mm. okay, well, I was feeling this, but now I can actually see the data and I can see why I was, I was feeling that. Mm. And this is a, this is sort of serves as a good segue into um, my next question. So in your 2018 study on lower limb running injuries, 
You stated that running is associated with a higher risk of overuse injuries than other forms of aerobic exercise, such as swimming and cycling. Why is it that running, I mean, it's a primal movement pattern. I mean, built into our DNA practically, we don't have to learn how to run. It kind of just happens. Uh, whereas with cycling and swimming, these are um, exercises that need to be taught. Uh, what's the discrepancy here? Why is it that we are suffering from injuries with our, probably our most primal movement pattern? I think uh, the comparison with those two sports, the main difference is, is gravity, is, is the kind of short answer. I guess I use them as a comparison and that's a scenario to show, I suppose, a comparison with traditionally high volume kind of singular movement type activities. You know, obviously with, with, with gravity and trying to decelerate your body repetitively, there's a much higher musculoskeletal demand in running. Now, why are we so injured if it's in our DNA? Well, there's a couple of things. One is we're a lot more sedentary in the way we live now and therefore we're not perhaps able to run in the same way that we were before. And then the other side of it is, even though it's in our DNA, it's not in our DNA to set aside an hour a day and, you know, smash out 10 kilometers, you know, it's in our DNA to hunt and to gather, you know? So um, I think the type of running that's been done is different. And I also think the environment is, is completely different, both in terms of footwear, surface, um, and daily living okay so you touched on sedentary behavior the fact that we we sedentary and then moving in this like specific block mm. of time um, and then you mentioned shoes which is a big fascinating topic we've done a bunch of barefoot shoe reviews um, i've been wearing barefoot shoes now for a couple of years so um you know can we maybe talk about barefoot shoes a bit um there was the literature review you published this year and you compared hunter-gatherers to the modern runner, and you described the incompatibility between modern shoe designs and our natural foot function, and you described it as a mismatch between evolutionary biology and cultural evolution. Um, could you elaborate uh, on what it is about modern footwear that led you to the point to point out this incompatibility? To link that to our previous point, I, th I, I think as well that running is a sport very low on movement variability and and what i mean by that is the running we do now again if we were in a hunter-gatherer situation we would have pace variation but we would also have regular surface variation so the amount of variability we're exposed to is a challenge so okay let's link that to your next question then so if we think about the interior of a shoe it's very regular um, it's very low on variability, you could say. Um, and if we think about a, a pavement or a road, it's also very regular. The mismatch is sort of like we've got this foot that was engineered and designed with all of these bones and joints that is able to be both stiff and flexible, depending on how that terrain is changing underneath our foot. And we then put that into a very regular interior on very regular ground. So now you have a structure that's designed for accomplishing a task, which is running, using multiple different strategies, now only able to accomplish the task using one strategy. So it's like we're, we're sort of confining um, and reducing the number of variables all the time. And I think variability is an interesting subject in general because 
if you look at variability across all diseases, you know, heart rate variability and so on, when, when that window gets too narrow, we, we get into disease states um, quite easily. So it seems that in our diet and in our footwear and in our exercise habits, uh, variability more often than not is quite good for us. I, I guess even the fact that humans have have thrived is, is is down to genetic variability. So I think I think the more variability you remove, the the sicker the the human becomes. You know, it's an interesting comparison, almost uh, comparing uh, nutrition deficiency to injury. You know, what was interesting you mentioned was that because we've gotten a lot of questions of you know people saying um, because we're advocates for barefoot shoes and we presented the fact that you know barefoot shoes can alter biomechanics and uh, could put perhaps. Uh, we get better sensory feedback. The foot is, a, is a allowed to move and function like it's supposed to. Um, and a lot of people have questioned that and said, well, you know, is it really the shoes or is it the surfaces we're running on? As you mentioned, the, the, the pavements, the, the level ground, the lack of variation. Um, but you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned that um, the shoe itself, the high cushion shoe with arch support, it's a stiff structure that um, reduces variability in itself. So now you're taking a, a surface with a little variability and you, you're slapping on a thick, stiff shoe with even less variability and you're pretty much going to overload the structures that way. So would you say that wearing barefoot shoes in the modern environment, in this concrete jungle we live in, would be a slight improvement um, over, you know, in terms of just increasing our variability? Because, you know, the, the soul is allowed to it does have more flexibility and range of motion. So just by design, um, you know, even in a modern environment, we would still, the foot would still be able to articulate and move a lot more than it would in a stiff and cushioned shoe. Yeah. I think the challenge is in the question that you've been asked is, is it the shoe or is it the surface we're running on or is it the biomechanics or, or, or? And I think what that highlights is perhaps a challenge in society more generally right now is too much of a black and white questioning. So um, the answer is all of it. Um, and so uh, part of the reason I wrote that review was to try and touch on all of it rather than to say this is good or, or this is not. Now, with, with the cushioned shoe and, and, and the heel and so on, well, yes, it makes sense if you hold your calf and Achilles in a shortened position. Muscles and tendons respond to how they're being used. So therefore, that will be an issue to consider when you transition to barefoot shoes. As regards, will there be more variability um, by wearing a minimalist shoe? Uh, yes, by default. If you can feel more, then you will you automatically will introduce more, more variability. I mean... You might have um, be familiar with in in the city where they have those um, you know sometimes at zebra crossings there's those studded um, pieces of footpath you know when you wear your minimalist shoes you can feel those for example and so you can feel your your toes been moved around a little bit so yeah and I think that the studies show that muscle foot muscle size and strength um, increases just through wearing those shoes so yes that that will help with that particular issue the bigger issue of is something good or bad or better or worse then needs another conversation sure and i mean with any scientific topic there's so much nuance and 
you know, it's just about, um, you know, you know, not nitpicking or, you know, honing in on one, but looking at it holistically and understanding that, you know, trying to get as many of these uh, boxes ticked as possible is what's, you know, collectively it's what's going to really make the difference at the end of the day. And in terms of like the biomechanical changes, another question that gets put out a lot uh, in our videos is that, you know, how, how come marathon runners like Iliad Kipchoge, for example, um, you know, how, how come they are able to run pretty much injury-free break world records, um, you know, despite wearing maximalist footwear? How would you respond to, to, to that question? Well, I think it's important to remember that most world champion level, um, you know, world championship level runners, marathon runners, um, heel strike. So we can approach that question in a few different ways. Well, firstly, I would say, if you are a world championship level athlete, by default, you have different musculoskeletal characteristics than the rest of us because you don't reach the world championships without that. Yes, they are in a different bracket. Uh, physiologically, they're in a different bracket in every sense. Um, I've known many, many, many talented runners, easily Olympic quality runners in terms of the ability to to run to metabolize all of that however their musculoskeletal system wasn't able to tolerate the training required to get to the level that was needed so so they're in a different bracket and um, the second thing i'd say about it is well who is toward the front of those races and if we look at that it's going to be an east african mainly so then we get into altitude and we get into social issues like the the need to escape poverty and we get into a lot of other issues however what 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 we would see is that they would probably grow up barefoot to a large extent and they would certainly grow up a lot more active than we are so now we have two things that are advantageous in terms of the musculoskeletal system developing well and the spring system developing well but also just day-to-day -day, the requirement for movement in general means that there's this constant low-level musculoskeletal and physiological stimulus that means by the time they're an adult you know i'm sure you could put a pair of welling boots on them and they'll, they'll be in pretty good um shape you know so um so i think there's there's a lot of factors in that one. That's super interesting. And I mean, I've seen, I've seen videos of the, his training camp, Iliad, Iliad, if we can continue talking about Iliad Kipchoge, and it's a, it's, it looks like a trail, it's a trail running course that he's spinning, you know, it's dirt, it's stones, there's a lot of variation there. Um, and, you know, you kind of touched on it, and maybe we, you can elaborate a little bit more. And that's the fact that, you know, if one grows up barefoot, and they develop all the structures, and the favorable biomechanics and movement patterns, perhaps a, a forefoot strike or, uh, you know, whatever, the, build up the, um, the elastic uh, structures in the Achilles tendon. How important is it to, have, to build a foundation, the foot foundation, um, and how, does that, how is that protective and preserving of the structures, both from an injury prevention perspective, but possibly even a performance perspective uh, later on in life? I think it's huge. And I think we don't have enough data um, in general um, that follow children over time. We are starting to, to make that the focus of our research now uh, more and more. And I guess a really 
you know, perhaps even oversimplistic way of explaining it would be if you change anything in your training too quickly, whether it's a, a thing that's perceived to be really good for your training or, or whatever, but the change, the rate of change, if it's too sudden, you'll, you'll be sore. You know, we've all played a game of football or uh, done a circuit class after a long time off and we're sore, you know. So what you have to imagine then is on a bigger level is if you've been in shoes most of your young life and sitting down and you decide to be an athlete, that's a very big change. You know, we see even with just take bones, you know, the, 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 the big push is to get your bone mineral density as high as you can by 16, 17, because after that, that's what you've got. You've, that's what you've got to go with, right? So I, I think that's very, very important um, in, in terms of how we develop and what happens later. Um, I wish we had a bit more data on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I, I read a study published in 2005 in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, and they found that children below the age of six who spent eight hours or more uh, per day in shoes had a significantly higher prevalence of flat feet later in life compared to those who were shod um, for less hours at a young age. Um, and mm. I found that um very interesting. I guess it's a testament to the fact that, you know, what we're doing at a young age, as you mentioned, before the age of, before adult years, that, you know, they can determine how we respond to exercise and to physical activity for the rest of our lives. So on our Instagram, we put out a poll and we basically just asked, do you have flat feet? And 52% um, of the near 1000 respondents voted yes. So they identify themselves as, as having flat feet. And I, I was quite surprised at the number. Do you believe that this is a widespread problem? And do you think that it, it's, um, it relates to, you know, wearing shoes when we're young and, um, you know, not being able to build up those structures properly? I would be interested to see how many of them actually have flat feet. Um, mm -hmm. Because many of the changes um, that we see in arch height and so on, are often due to changes occurring due to intrinsic foot muscle weakness. And so therefore, it's not a true um, flat foot, you could say. I think it's uh, Daniel Lieberman talks about how if you go back into the archaeological records, there is almost no flat feet. So I wonder whether, whether we do have a high prevalence of flat feet or whether we do just have those changes. I'm sure there are some people, but it's a bit like, it's a bit like leg length discrepancy. You don't see it every day. You know, it's not, it's not 52%, you know? No. I, and it's, it's obviously an acquired flat foot or a collapsed arch rather where mm. the structures are just un, unable to hold up the arch. They, all, this, all the physical structures are there. They're just not working properly. Mm. Um, so that's super interesting. And, um, you know, this is great because, you know, we've been talking about barefoot running a lot uh, through our channel and uh, we actually developed a barefoot shoe transition program um, dedicated to help people build up their intrinsic foot muscles. We, you know, we, we went down a rabbit hole in the, in the literature and, and our program takes somebody six months to complete to be able to run their normal distances, um, you know, in barefoot shoes or completely barefoot. And we've taken that conservative approach because, you know, we see the value in taking your time and, and reducing the risk of injury. 
And, you know, this is kind of what's given barefoot running a bad rep over the last few years because it's been a real trend, you know, going barefoot and, and using minimalist footwear. But, you know, there's another side that, um, you know, it, it gets frowned upon because of the high injury rates and people putting on a pair of barefoot shoes, going for a 5K run for the first time and then in excruciating pain for a week afterwards and being like, no, that's not for me. That, you know, I need to go back to my normal shoes. How important do you feel it is for someone who's, you know, dabbling into barefoot running, uh, bought a pair of minimalistic footwear to take their time and to build all the intrinsic muscles and build the new movement patterns and new neural connections and everything that goes with, uh, you know, learning something novel and new. I think the key piece is um, taking the time. Now, how you do that is there's many options um, for that. We have a pretty high degree of success with transitioning people to doing some barefoot running on a grass surface. So I live in Ireland and, and previously in the UK where we've got a pretty pliable grass surface most of the year because we're, we're never too long without rain. My experience is you can do that quite well, particularly if you can get people to self-select their running speed that's appropriate for them. You keep the dose to 10 or 15 minutes, depending. I've, I've found people can transition quite well to that. Now, that's not to say I do think there is a lot of value in, in anything that strengthens the muscles and prepares you for activity in general. But I, I, something I'm getting more and more interested in uh, as I go along with this stuff is what if we just change the environment, you know? So sports science and, and physiotherapy and, and all of that is great. But I think we, we have a tendency to dissect all the component parts and then try and put humans back together like a car mechanic, you know? And it looks lovely in theory, uh, and it looks really nice on diagrams and it makes sense intuitively. But I, I sort of wonder, you know, as monkeys with big brains, if we just got put back into the forest, would we be fine? You know, so I'm open to a slow, gradual walking, running program, you know, on a, a variable surface that is not man-made, you could say. And I'm open to a strength and conditioning transition program. But in both cases, the key is take your time. For sure. You know, don't run before you can walk, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's some truth in those, uh, uh, in those words. What about, what is your opinion on changing and learning a biomechanics? So we know barefoot running, it helps to increase your cadence uh, by shortening your, your, uh, your stride length. Um, you naturally move to more of a forefoot striking uh, movement pattern. Uh, your vertical oscillation uh, becomes more tight and you know, there's less variation there. Um, what, or less amplitude rather. So um, you know, what is your opinion on also going through some type of technical uh, training, you know, going through specific drills, running drills, working with a metronome, for example, to increase your cadence? Um, are these things that can be of use as well? Yeah, one of the things I first loved about barefoot running was you didn't have to coach it because <laughs> once the sensory input was there, people just did the right technique. However, I say that, I, what I should say is most people or the majority of people, not everybody did, um, not everyone adapted 
um, in the same way. Um, maybe two thirds of people did. So, um, yeah, it, as relation to the other things, I definitely think they all have a place and they can all help. Um, certainly with gait retraining, I think you will, if you change the joint positions, by default, you change the muscle work. So, yes, um, I think that has potential to help for sure. But again, it also falls under the umbrella of one one component. So it's a little bit like the car mechanic again, where we've we've adjusted one component, but there's so many others. So yeah, no, I I do feel there's this potential there, and and something I'm asked sometimes when when I work with a runner who has a positive transition to barefoot running on grass and is able to tolerate, you know, higher volumes of training than they, they ever could before. But, you know, maybe they're going away and, and they're a little bit apprehensive about running in shoes again and, and so on. Um, I generally tell them to get a pair that's light, comfortable and cheap. You know, comfortable because if we listen to ourselves, you know, sometimes and something feels in, instinctively comfortable, that's, that's not a, always a bad sign. Uh, to light because they can then transfer their barefoot running form uh, into their their shoes and cheap because there's no point in spending money on nonsense. Um, so yeah, I I, I think um, those those things, particularly in urban environments, can be part of the strategy. It's interesting. Um, it calls to mind the study you did on the case study you did on the lady with plantar fasciitis and how. Yeah. Um, only once she had started barefoot running um, and you'd removed that sort of obstruction um, did her pain completely dissipate. Um, so it's fascinating when you say that, you know, what's the beauty of behind barefoot running is that you don't really need to coach it. Uh, all these favorable changes happen by themselves. And, you know, as soon as you move the obstruction, you move the obstacle, the body kind of by default knows where to go and it kind of just finds its way we just got to let the body remove everything and just let the body free and just let it do its thing you know um yeah. how, how do you know when how, how do you know how to find that balance you know when you're trying to navigate uh your training and uh your coaching as well um how do you do it with with your with your athletes i think it's amazing when you can get out of your head and into your body um the wisdom that's there it's amazing most people they know um they know but even even cl clinically just with injuries in general you know i always i always work with someone and say right we're going to problem solve this together because you need an external voice to help you do that but usually it's it's their information i'm using to help them solve their problem so we might identify a list of things that aggravate the problem and we might say okay that's really useful information now because we know what makes it worse and then we might identify a list of things that make it better okay okay that's really inf useful information because we know that and so you know sometimes when you know you mentioned that case report you know what what i said to that person was right well we've loaded it now which is the worst thing we could do really and we've got three options this gets worse in other words that was a very bad idea uh it stays the same which means 
even though we've been quite aggressive with what we've done, it hasn't got any worse. In other words, it's worth further consideration or in a best case scenario, it gets better. So um, in terms of knowing where that line is, it's myself, I think deep down, um, you, you get to know where it is. But when I'm working with people, a lot of my answers to them are somewhat simple and boring and uncomplicated because, because often they, they have the information. I, I think in general, maybe, again, a, a flaw in our field is, is the drive towards uh, precise metrics and uh, what they mean. And I think all of that falls apart when you start working with a real person, you know? Um, so, yeah, there's not a hard and fast uh, rule for it. But when somebody's tired, they know they're tired. When somebody's sore, they know they're sore. You know, so it's kind of it's kind of working it that way. So, sometimes it, you can push people because the thing that they're worried about is not actually real. In that case, you can say, "Okay, let's try a little bit of this." I know you're worried, but let's try a little bit of this, and then you start to build their confidence of, "Oh, I can I can do this." Um, so sometimes there is a little bit of that, but that's that's why you need your external uh, voice, I guess. For sure, for sure. And I mean, we often fall victim to the paralysis by analysis, you know, especially, mm. um, you know, with I'm a sports, sports scientist as well. So, you know, with the background, um, always having to, you know, find some literature to back up everything that you that you are thinking about. Um, we kind of, you know, we get into that very mathematical mindset. That's kind of what drew me into barefoot running was the fact that for the first time I was starting to use my sense of touch. Mm. Um, you know, I was able to feel the ground and know, okay, well, when I bash my heel into the ground, barefoot running, it's painful. So I ought to stop doing that. And automatically I adjust into more of a, a sort of mid to forefoot striking pattern. And then the pain dissipates and I'm like, my brain's like, okay, great. That's much better. <laughs> um, and you know, that's not something that you need books to, to teach you. It's just, it's intuitive. You feel it. You get this, this pain shooting up your leg and you, you just know, okay, this is not the right thing. And that's amazing for me. You know, um, it kind of makes you feel like you, you're on the right path because you get so, you're using all your senses. I don't know if you've, you've got anything to add to that. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good point. I think that um, if you are a runner uh, nowadays, you are information overloaded um, from, from all angles and you lose touch with your own ability to um, listen to your body. So um, I think that's important. But I also think something you said is interesting about even as a sports scientist and you're trying to, to back up what you're saying. You know, I think we forget sometimes that all ideas have to come from somewhere. So, so it's fine having studies that have established something and then variants of those same studies. But if we just did that, we'd have no new ideas. So, you know, and again, something I find in conversation, I say a lot to people is, don't forget a PhD means doctor of philosophy. You've got to be able to think, you know, you've got to be able to, to, to use your own mind. Um, and so I, early in my career, I never would have published a case report because I would have thought, well, 
oh, that's only just one person and, you know, that's rubbish and, you know, whatever. But actually, the seeds for the best studies I've ever done um, are when I'm, when I'm thinking about what it is I'm doing and, and, and why. Um, and we've got re- some more exciting data with bigger numbers to come on that um, plantar fasciitis study. Um, but you know, my favorite study ever is, is, uh, the one I did in New Zealand where one day I was just looking out the window of my office and, um, I noticed all the kids ran on the hard track with no shoes. And I thought, wow, I didn't think they could do it on the hard track. And, and so then we just designed a study ad hoc and got in touch with the school and did the study. And it's, it's off the top of my head One, you know, it's like science was supposed to be you know, I wonder why, you know, the apple falls from the tree, you know. Um, so again, we've, I think we've over-intellectualized science to the point that it's, that it's um, sort of dying in boxes, you know what I mean? In terms of things that are already known and done are done and done and done because it's, it's safe science, I suppose, um, you know. It's not to say that, you know, you, you keep an open mind, not, not so that your brain falls out on the table, but, but, but that you, you know, um, you stay open to things you don't know yet, you know. Definitely, not to put yourself in a straitjacket with uh, yeah of, of references and uh, and citations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And um, in talking about case studies, one of the the, the case studies that uh, I'll never forget reading was uh, one on a triathlete uh, who kept on getting hamstring cramps. Um, and after identifying that the glutes were not responding properly and the hamstrings were sort of taking the role of the glutes as the primary hip extender. Um, the, they went on a glute, glute retraining protocol, uh, sort of uh, got the glutes firing again, um, and the, the triathlete's hamstring pain and discomfort uh, disappeared. Um, what is your opinion on the connection between the glutes and the feet? I think the first thing is to, is to, is to talk about the case study. So. What, what we have to remember with case studies is that there are so many possible explanations there. So number one, the fact that I'm getting a treatment at all may, may completely rewire my physiology in, in a positive way. Um, number two, um, I've introduced a new stimulus when I do a new treatment. Number three, maybe there is something in the, in the glute uh situation you know number four maybe the person who is doing it with me i believe in them um so i think it's important to stay to to use these things to ask questions um but to stay wide on our explanations um because it it could be a whole bunch of things and then you know are the glutes linked to the ankles it's a bit like saying are the eyes linked to your ankles you know it's like of course they are because because the whole thing is one so um with with the glutes and the ankle link it's a little bit you know dissecting things again because because what we see is when you get the sensory input to the feet um the lower limb biomechanics change so so the ankle the knee the hip everything changes so uh, we could draw lines between all of those things, but um, I, I think we probably need to get a little bit more into whole system 
thinking. I mean, one of the one of my favorite analogies is, you know, we can study how birds fly, and we can, and I'm sure thousands of people have done PhDs on it, the exact physics and how all of that works and stuff. But you don't then line all the birds up on the wall and say, the thing you're doing wrong with your flying is this, you know, <laughs> they just know how to fly. Right. Now it, you know, maybe their left wing is giving them a bit more than their right one, but it doesn't matter because they're they're able to fly, right? So I think what we, we need to do that with ourselves a little bit now, um, in terms of in terms of how we're we're moving. And I'm not to say that there's not merit, you know, in if if I do a, a glute intervention, of course. The sideways facing pelvis is allowed is what allowed us to stand upright and to walk and to run. And therefore, you know, those muscles that connect our torso to our legs, um, uh, of course, are important. And we see when people transition well to barefoot running, uh, these muscles switch on more. So, yeah, yeah, they're definitely relevant, as are uh, all the other muscles um, on the on the way down. Definitely. Um, the study that you did um, where you found knee injuries to be the most common amongst runners, uh, mm. regardless of gender, um, mm. you know, why do you think, why do you think that is? Why are the knees sort of bearing the brunt of our, of our running? Uh, I think we can go back to some of the start on this in terms of um, running mechanics are definitely an issue. Um our level of conditioning is definitely an issue. Um, I think the knee is particularly interesting in that when our ability to decelerate our body effectively, whether that's from a jump in, in field sports or running, when that's compromised, we tend to see knee issues. And sometimes that could be like a traumatic um, ACL ligament injury. And sometimes it's like patellofemoral pain syndrome and I do feel the hips and the glute muscles uh, are big players in that because they control the femoral um, movement so um, I think because we are more seated more often I think our posterior chain is not working in a way that it once did um, but it still works, of course. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to walk or run or do anything, right? So it still works. But I think maybe the balance between anterior and posterior and the coordination between the two systems is a little bit off. Um, and I think with an extended lower limb that relies primarily on quadriceps for stability, we're, we are going to run into knee issues um, in, in that case. Okay, so um, quad dominance definitely exacerbates our, our issue and, you know, perhaps focusing on the posterior chain, getting those glutes uh, more activated. Talking about that, how much do you think um, reciprocal inhibition um, is to play here, i.e. tight hip flexors, tight rectus femoris, you know, inhibiting the glute function? Um, how much do you think that plays a role, you know, due to all the sitting that we're doing all day long and being chronically tight on these, in these anterior structures? Yeah. I mean, even in what I said to you a second ago, I find myself disagreeing with myself at the same time in terms of, I understand the concept and I agree with the concept, for example, of quad dominance. However, if somebody listens to that, it sounds like they should kind of exterminate their quads and 
fire up their glutes. And I, I, don't, I don't think that's quite right either. Um, I mean, the, the calf and the quads, uh, when, we, when we transition to upright movement, are the prime drivers of the forward momentum. And the, the, the glutes are the stabilizers that allow us from, to hop from one leg to the other. So again, I think what we probably need to start doing is talking about how do we achieve coordinated human movement? Because even in the perfect runner, quads are really important muscle. Um, you know, we really need them. And sometimes I feel when these conversations uh, don't have enough nuance, we, we kind of leave everybody going home, stretching their quads like mad and, and trying to fire up the glutes when um, maybe if we just put up a mirror and taught them good landing mechanics, then all the muscles would fix themselves because if you get the joints in the right position, then the muscles have no choice. You know. Uh, so thinking about movement first and kind of letting the body take care of itself. Well, you've no choice, though. You, you like you cannot get into certain positions otherwise. You know. For sure, sure for sure. So, um, for example, maybe you know if you see someone is lacking hip extension, uh, focus on hip extension. <laughs> If you see somebody with a toed out uh, foot position, you know, try and and work on a little bit of internal rotation. Um, maybe, maybe, but maybe. but actually, uh, yes, yes, in terms of uh, you know, practice the movement that you want to achieve for sure. Um, but even if we take the, the the foot external rotation, does it matter? So let's say we've got a world championship runner with two externally rotated feet who has never been injured. We're not going to change that, you know? So again, that's what we got to be careful with is maybe or maybe not, you know, like, so it's like if somebody's fine, then, then, then they're a bird that's flying, you know? So it's like, they don't need um, our intervention, but maybe, yeah. If, if somebody's having a lot of trouble and maybe their activities of daily living mean they're in a lot of sustained postures, uh you know that's that's having an impact then okay how do we break up those sustained postures you know what kind of a movement program can we introduce yeah definitely in in, in that scenario but um i think a thing we're very guilty of in this field again is is given the label of you have you, your feet are like this and that's a big problem because all of this stuff is not just physical it's psychological as well so you know, you, you get a label of, oh, I've got a degenerative this. It's very hard to undo that when when somebody gets that label. Um, it takes a lot of work to undo that. It took me about 10 years to undo it. So um, I think that's another big thing we're guilty of is in attributing meaning to very natural variation, you know. Um, when we go back in evolutionary times, we didn't all have the exact same uh, bones and symmetric uh, perfect you know we, we just accomplished tasks so uh, some of us did that with a bit more arm strength and some of us did it with a bit more leg strength but essentially there's lots of ways to do things so yeah I think that's another little little sin of our profession yeah for sure I mean uh, for example I see it a lot uh, with with squatting uh, you know should you deep squat well, some people just don't have the structures to squat. If they've got the so-called Scottish hip, 
Um, you know, you're just not able to hit the depth. You know, your 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 hip sockets uh, made for more for rotation and sort of upright movements. Um, and getting down, you know, like the Polish, getting down deep and uh, ask to the grass is just not the way that you wired. Um, so does that mean that you should, you know, be practicing trying to deep squat or, you know, perhaps understand that uh, we do have variation structurally and perhaps just play to your strengths. Um, and if, and as you say, if it's not broken, uh, there's no real need to fix it. Um, but, you know, on the, on the flip side, should we wait for something to happen? Should we wait for something to break uh, before we think, oh, okay, maybe now it's time that we should intervene? Or, you know, when do, we, when do we say, okay, well, perhaps I could improve this? Because, you know, on one side, yes, you know, we, we're sort of passionate, for the lack of a better word, of trying to get people out of pain and what have you. But we're also chasing performance because performance is cool. Um, everybody wants to perform better. Um, so if you can take an athlete that is the world's best and make him the world's greatest, you know, is, is, this, is, is that wrong? Um, it's a tough conversation and I think we could probably spend the uh, next two days talking about that, but maybe you have something interesting to, to uh, respond. I think three things, uh, science, uh, the individual and trade-offs. So where, where I would be frustrated is sometimes we assess things that have no predictive basis. So in that scenario, we have to weigh up what is the cost of measuring this in this person and telling them that information versus the benefit. So we've got to be pretty sure that whatever it is we're doing will deliver over and above the cost of introducing new information. I think sometimes another thing we forget in this profession is that everything has a negative consequence, everything. So even if it's the best intervention ever, as soon as I give you something new to accommodate, I've disrupted your rhythm. So you have to then make space in your head to accommodate that. So I, my intervention must be therefore good enough to overcome the backward step and add further on to the, the next forward step. And I don't, I think that's where the idea of trade-offs comes in, in terms of really thinking about that and really thinking about what is the potential negative side to, to all of this. And then the thing with, with, with science is sometimes it shows us really well, like I think there's more and more data coming along to show that, um, you know, uh, landing mechanics programs in female uh, soccer, you know, can lower rates of injury, you know, therefore, is it wise to introduce those movements into warmups? Yeah, sounds good to me. You know, that's, that sounds pretty, that sounds pretty sound. Now, interestingly, even if we do that, if that coach changes their training load too much, too, too quickly, um, then all of our injury prevention warm-ups won't matter anyway. So it's like, can we zoom out a little bit and then work out the trade-offs and then and then intervene? You know, so um, it's not that we're it's not that we're avoiding or we're, we're waiting for something bad to happen before we intervene. I think it's we're being a little bit more humble about how certain we can be in our predictions for an individual because i don't think we can be that certain you know 
Gotcha. Yeah, we said, I said, I'm, I'm a keen golfer and I grew up playing golf my whole life. And uh, I saw it so many times a professional, uh, you know, major winner uh, decides, you know, he's going to, you know, he's, he needs a new swing, <laughs> starts working with a new, a new swing coach, and then you don't hear of him for 10 years. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, why? You know, because he thought maybe, you know, whatever. Tiger Woods, it happened to him. You know, he had four back surgeries. And, you know, obviously the swing he had was putting way too much uh, stress on his spine. Um, but it took him almost a decade and that then that man's super mentally tough and he you know he's got that drive and that that inner desire to just do it no matter what um, and maybe if it was anyone else you just would never have heard of them again um, so hundred uh, um, percent one thing I wanted to mention uh, just to close off a, a previous open-ended question I had was um, you know in terms of the knee injuries so you mentioned how the glutes uh, could be a culprit uh, not keeping the, uh, the femur aligned and maybe there's a bit of a vulgus or whatever. How much do you think the downstream part of that could be affecting the knees as well? Uh, sort of collapsed arches, overpronation. So, you know, you kind of, you've got a joint that's sitting in between uh, the hips and the feet and both dysfunction downstream or upstream could be affecting that joint. Do you think that might be a reason why uh, knee injuries are, are, are so high in runners? For sure. I think it can work. Like I think it can work downstream and I think it can work uh, in the opposite direction. However, if we were barefoot and, you know, hunting and gathering, would we have strong Achilles tendons and feet muscles? Yes. Would we have functioning glute muscles? Yes. Functioning quads, functioning ham Yes. So um, I, I do think those things are interrelated, but, Sometimes it can be hard to pick out, does that one go downstream and cause that? Or does this one start downstream and cause this? Uh, and, uh, you know, my instinct would be a, a, a bit of both, um, to be honest. Definitely. Um, so, you know, going away from specifics, zooming out, you know, mm. uh, and, you know, if you had to give some, some type of blanket recommendation to everybody, um, what would you, what, I know, I know I've got to be very careful with that question. Um, <laughs> what, what would you say, uh, you know, get out of your shoes and just move in as many different ways as you can constantly vary your movement. What, what would you, what kind of advice would you give? Well, you mentioned, um, Tiger Woods, um, and, and taking 10 years. So it, it took me 10 years, um, from being an injury prone runner to, uh, been able to run for three years consistently and run some PBs. And what I had to do was sort of forget everything I knew uh, uh, in terms of norms, you know, like running norms, um, which is generally high volumes of running and, and so on. And I needed to create a program that worked for me where I was right now. So it's a little bit like accepting the present moment, you know, in terms of this is where I am. And then making a list of things I needed to do um, in order to improve, to be better than I was yesterday. And that sort of step at a time approach, you know, got me eight weeks of training. And once I got eight weeks of training and I raced and I got a bit better, then I did another eight weeks of training. So along that journey, um, I wrote loads of blogs on 
how to do all of that. Um, you can you can read them all on um, peterfrancis.blog under the running from injury tab. But the question you asked there is a really good one because you're right. Um, if I'm if I'm teaching a class, I sort of uh, I sort of don't like that question, but I understand it. Okay, uh, I always feel that if I've done a good enough job, whoever it is should be empowered enough to be able to 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 work work it out. However, I do accept that we all need a little bit of structure to get us moving sometimes, right? So what I've just done there is I've pulled up the PowerPoint from my uh, running from injury talk, and this the very last slide is so what do I do now? And there is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things on it that I'll just um, shoot to you, which hopefully will answer the question. So um, design a variable program where no two days are the same. Um, think about the volume of running you can do comfortably. Try to do it for eight to 10 weeks. Keep a spreadsheet of your training whereby it's easy to see what you have been doing. Engage in some form of strength and conditioning. Incorporate 10 to 15 minutes of easy barefoot running on grass a couple of times per week. At least once a week, run as fast as you can, if possible, up a hill. And then lastly, make the headspace to run. So what that means is if you want to get better at something, you got to make enough time for it. You, you, you can't really be sprinting from the office to the running group at seven o'clock and then sprinting down back to have your dinner. And you've got to make a bit of headspace to be able to uh, be in a good state of mind to, 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 to get better at something. So, so those were just a list of uh, things and, and you'll see they're all very generic. They're all very broad. And what, what that allows the individual to do is a variable program. So they can say, well, I live beside a yoga studio great i'll use that but it means the guy who doesn't live beside a yoga studio can uh but he lives beside a, a a park with with a load of hills in it well you know he can use that so it, it helps people to think in their environment what are my options a, a lot of my training was based on situational convenience because that was the thing that gave me enough headspace you know, if I had to drive two hours to get to the special gym, then the special gym was sending me backwards, not forwards, you know. So um, hopefully that answers it a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I, I want to nitpick just a little here. You mentioned uh, running as fast as you can uphill. Why uphill and not on a, on a straight surface? Okay, so um, one thing I noticed was if you squat... Um, just your standard squat, if you sprint, if you um, run up a hill, and if you run barefoot, all four of those things have something in common, and that is flexion of your hip, knee, and your ankle. And therefore, you must eccentrically use your muscles to control those movements. Um, the, the, the running as fast as you can thing is, is partly to do with that. And it's also partly to remind you of what you're capable of. I think a lot of people, um, begin to fear a void when they feel they're not very fit. They're not very conditioned. They're, they're injury prone. And, and something that was great for me was 
no matter what little niggles I had, when I was sprinting up that hill as fast as I could once a week, I knew my body worked just fine. Um, and so, uh, you know, everything in the talk I do is, oh, it's, it's, it's half physical and half mental. You know, maybe the biggest thing I learned was that you can't separate those two things, you know? Definitely. And, um, you know, it's, it's also, you know, from a physiological perspective, I think it mimics very much our hunter-gatherer ancestors who, you know, had these, you know, bouts of exercise that were super high intensity and it's something that we, we lack these days. Um, so, and uh, just to finish off this conversation, um, you know, talking about the mental aspect, how do you sort of help your athletes get into the right frame of mind, build the confidence um, and sort of inspire them to be able to, you know, be consistent with their training and, uh, you know, continuously have the, the courage and that confidence to, you know, to get out there every day and, um, and train? Especially, sorry, especially people who are, as you say, prone to injury, you know, who are in fighting injury, maybe whether it be back or knee, whatever, whatever it may be. I think the biggest thing with success in anything is consistency. Everybody wants to be consistent, but, but few um, master it. And what I would try to do with people is to get them into where they are now rather than where they want to be. Um, and if you can get a level of acceptance there, that's important. The other thing is I would get them to change their mindset from a runner, a footballer, a rugby player, whatever it is they do to an athlete, because an athlete can improve multiple components of fitness and get better. Whereas if I am only a runner and I can't run, I have now lost my entire identity. Whereas when I made my more successful comeback, um, there was yoga, there was circuit training, there was plyometrics, there was sprinting up a hill, there was, and there was long runs and uh, threshold runs and track runs and stuff. But um, I was a lot more of an athlete in training. In other words, if I ran into trouble, uh, with the running component of my program, I had somewhere to go because I would just switch to cross trainer or switch to whatever I needed to do. And when that niggle was gone the following week, which it invariably is, if you stop, you know, in time, um, I would just then return to normal. So I would say to people decide on the goal and make a deal with yourself that you will, whatever training you are able to do now, you will do a block of it without increasing it too quickly um just make a promise to yourself that you will stay with that um then you will see how little you have to do to get better provided it's consistent and then when people begin to see that that doubles their buy into the process because they believe now wow i all i did was this but i did it for eight weeks and i'm so much better than i was eight weeks ago and that will help them to delay gratification um, which is really the enemy in, in this kind of drive towards consistency. The other thing is that by having more variable training strategies, that helps you delay gratification as well. Because if you're tempted to do an extra run, instead you can say, well, I'll do an extra something else. And so that stops you kind of overindulging in any one aspect of training. So 
yeah, uh, slow and steady, except where you are now. Stay open to training in a different way. Try not get sucked in by what other people are doing. All of those things. Another thing I would do is deliberately create opportunities for them to see their progress. And even, even if that's just to see themselves that they can sprint up a hill, you know, anything that shows them what's possible, uh, like us all, it, it increases our buy-in, you know? Yeah, sure. I mean, not always doing, uh, you know, the exercises that you, that you most weak at, but sometimes doing the things that you, that you're good at too, giving, giving you that confidence and that reminder that, Hey, you're not, you're not that bad. You still have, you know, working limbs. <laughs> Dr. Francis, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a, a very enlightening a conversation and uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, uh, having a conversation with us. It was lovely My meeting pleasure. you. My pleasure. <laughs> and hopefully we can do it again sometime when, uh, in the near future. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, where can people find you? Um, your website, your, your Twitter? Um, so peterfrancis.blog is a good one for all the runners who, who want to read about um you know on, on that there's a lot about how to put together the seven days of training and you know in a way that works in real life when you've got to go to work and stuff like that so um they can find that there um instagram is at running from injury um my twitter is twitter is probably the main one i use uh particularly with putting out the latest science and so on and that's um at peter francis underscore ie um and hopefully next year, um, the book Running From Injury will will come out, which basically is in two sections. First section is why do runners get injured? And the second section is how do we fix it? And it tries to take a very uh, broad, zoomed out, nuanced, integrated way to package it together in a way that by the time you read the first half of the book, I'm hoping you'll kind of know the answers in the second half of the book. So, um yeah. Wow. Well, hopefully we can we can do another interview uh, when that book's out and uh, that'll be awesome. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode with Dr. Peter Francis. As mentioned earlier, you can find the summarized blog version of this podcast with all the links at exercisinghealth.net forward slash podcast. Alternatively, use the search bar on the exercisinghealth.net homepage and search for Peter Francis. If you haven't already, also subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram by searching for Exercising Health. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Chris, and until next time, cheers. Cheers.